Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Fegele Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Observers say voting in Nigeria's general election was credible. Fierce fighting erupts in South Sudan's unity state. In economics, South Africa and Algeria to boost trade relations. And in sports news, South Africa call up Dupree for Tokyo 7's rugby tournament. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Nigeria's opposition candidate Muhammadu Buhari is in the lead with votes from 18 states out of 36 states in the federal capital counted. The Electoral Commission says four results from the country's presidential election are expected today. Sirakimani reports. The international community has sent observers across Nigeria. In Lagos, collection of results went on Monday amid concerns from Britain and the United States in a statement that there are disturbing indications that the collection process may be subject to political interference. The statement further warned against intimidation of the country's electoral commission, INEC, and chairman, Atahiru Jaga. In Lagos, residents anxiously followed the news on the outcome of the election. Meanwhile, Nigerians living in South Africa have expressed mixed reviews on the expectations. Thousands of Nigerians went to the polls over the weekend for the presidential elections. The South African Broadcasting Corporation spoke to Nigerians living in Johannesburg to get their views on the election. The result from Nigeria is uh, good luck. Yeah, I need him to win. Because I'm expecting uh, Buhari to win uh, the election. So why I'm just expecting him uh, to become a president? Because he promised us that he's going to stop all the war in Nigeria. An example, like this Boko Haram of things and make peace. And I want good luck to win. In as much as good luck is not a very good president, but Buhari is too old to rule Nigeria. There are younger people that are supposed to rule Nigeria. A three-day lockdown in Sierra Leone has exposed hundreds of potential new cases of Ebola. Officials ordered the country's six million residents to stay indoors or face arrest during the period that ended late on Sunday. Sierra Leone has reported nearly 12,000 cases since the worst Ebola epidemic in history was detected in neighboring Guinea a year ago. In all, more than 10,000 people have died in the two countries plus Liberia. Gunmen have shot dead a top Ugandan state prosecutor whose cases included include the trial of 13 men accused of involvement in Al-Shabaab bomb attacks that killed 76 people in 2010. The July 2010 suicide bombings targeted football fans watching the World Cup final at a restaurant and a rugby club in the capital Kampala. Somalia's Al-Qaeda-affiliated Al-Shabaab militants claimed responsibility for the attack, the group's first outside Somalia. 
Ahead of an international pledging conference for Syria and neighboring host countries, United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization says funds are urgently needed to prevent further deterioration of the food security situation. The conference is taking place in Kuwait today. FAO warned yesterday that the ongoing crisis in Syria has severely disrupted agricultural production and trade, and more than 9 million people are food insecure. Stephanie Kutrix reports. FAO is seeking 59 million U.S. dollars for its work in Syria to support the production of staple foods and improve families' nutrition and income. It says another 62 million U.S. dollars is needed to help host communities in Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon and Turkey cope with the influx of refugees by making their agriculture more productive and sustainable. The agency is underlining that the third International Humanitarian Pledging Conference for Syria presents an opportunity to raise critical funds to strengthen agricultural production in the region. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, and It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Nigerian militant Islamic group Boko Haram continues its violent attacks and human rights abuses against civilians in northeast Nigeria and neighboring countries. This is according to the United Nations Security Council. The terrorists threatened to intensify their activities during general elections that were held over the weekend. The group recently pledged allegiance to the so-called ISIL extremists who have carried out atrocities in Iraq and Syria. UN Radio Stephanie Kutrix reports. The Security Council heard briefings from senior UN officials on the impact of the Boko Haram terrorist attacks in Nigeria and neighboring countries. Nigeria and its neighbors, Chad and Niger, have mounted operations against the terrorist group. Mohamed Ibn Chambas is the head of the UN office in West Africa, or UNOA. Today, as we meet, though weakened, The group continues to commit horrendous acts against civilians, including women and children. We have received reports that children in particular have been abducted, abused, recruited, maimed and killed. Mr. Chamba said schools in northeast Nigeria are no longer safe places of learning, as many of them continue to be attacked, looted and destroyed. Schools that have been attacked by Boko Haram in neighboring Cameroon and Niger also remain closed, the envoy added. Mr. Chambas also pointed out that in 2014, the group started using girls as suicide bombers for attacks in populated areas. We've also observed an alarming trend of children being used by the group as human shields. Boko Haram's recent allegiance to the Islamic State for Iraq and the Levant, ISIL, whether for publicity reasons or to tap into ISIL support, is also of concern as it gives a clear signal that Boko Haram's agenda goes well beyond Nigeria. More than 1.5 million people have been displaced by the ongoing conflict in northeastern Nigeria since a state of emergency was declared in May 2013, according to the Deputy Emergency Relief Coordinator. 
Kyung-wa Kang told the Security Council that civilians have suffered in the hands of Boko Haram terrorists. More than 7,300 civilians have been killed by Boko Haram since the beginning of 2014 in the three state of emergency states. This year alone, 1,000 people have lost their lives. More than 300 schools have been severely damaged or destroyed. Less than 40% of health facilities in affected areas remain operational. Gross human rights violations, including sexual and gender-based violence and child trafficking, are frequently reported. Kyung-wa Kang said that the escalation of Boko Haram-related violence in the region continues to hinder access to people in desperate need of humanitarian assistance. She warned that as many as 3 million people in northern Nigeria will not be able to meet their basic food needs after July 2015 unless they receive what she called well-targeted humanitarian assistance. Stephanie Kutrix, United Nations. Voting in Nigeria's general election was broadly credible. Despite widespread logistical challenges, domestic and foreign observers said in preliminary findings released on Monday. Election results from eight out of Nigeria's 36 states show that President Goodluck Jonathan is leading his rival Muhammadu Buhari by a narrow margin of 22,000 votes. Nigeria's Electoral Commission says full results from countries presidential election from the country's presidential election are expected today. The front runners, incumbent Goodluck Jonathan and Muhammadu Buhari, both committed to ensuring that peace prevails after the final results are released. But the much-publicized conflict in the north of the country was the focal point for world media at a press conference yesterday. The head of the EU observer mission, Santiago Fisas, says they could not send observers to the war-torn area. The EU observation mission strongly encouraged our next efforts in difficult circumstances and in spite of strong tensions and criticisms to maintain the highest level of impartiality. I am not ready to send my people to be killed there. The Commonwealth has commended Nigerians but spared no punches for politicians' conduct. Here's Observer Mission Head Bakile Muluzi. We are concerned with the tendency of some senior politicians, activists and party spokespersons who resorted to highly emotive rhetoric which could be regarded as the incitement to violence. Head of the African Union Observer Mission, Amos Sawyer, expressed satisfaction with the voting process. We uh, support the work of INEC and uh, we urge them on to continue uh, with the on independence and uh, integrity, and uh, we are hopeful that it's uh, going to work out. Observers have also urged the Electoral Commission to take its time to preserve the integrity of the poll, and with the results expected soon, it's hoped all parties will accept the outcome. It's 8.11 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. 
The government of South Sudan claims that its army has killed 54 rebels in fierce fighting in the oil-rich region of Unity, north of the capital, Juba. But the rebels have refused to confirm government casualty figures or disclose the number of their fighters and government troops killed in the fighting. James Shimanyula has more. That the fierce battle occurred in and around Bentiu, the capital of the oil-rich United States government military spokesman, Colonel Philip Panyangagwer, said. The fighting took place, the rebel forces were defeated, and they withdrew leaving 54 dead uh, soldiers. The rebel tried to shell Bentiu town for the third time in a week, and the SPLA responded, and... They clashed outside Bentiu town. The rebels were dispersed and the SPLA is in full control of Bentiu and the surroundings. The fighting in Bentiu comes at a time when the government of President Salva Kiir and rebels led by former Vice President Riek Machar have failed to sign a crucial peace agreement. But both sides agreed to stop fighting pending fresh meeting aimed at giving Kir and his political and military rival, Riek Machar, another chance to sign a permanent agreement to pave the way for the formation of a government of national unity. Government Army spokesman Philip Panyangagwer maintains that the government side is still committed to restoring peace in South Sudan. Government Army remain committed to the regional and international effort to bring peace to South Sudan. However, the Army have the obligation to protect the territorial integrity of the Republic of South Sudan and protect the civilians in this town. So we will continue to defend ourselves and fight back in self-defense. After the time, the rebel will accept the ceasefire and peace is brought to South Sudan. The fighting in Bentiu. The capital of Unity State, north of Juba, has also been confirmed by James Ruang, spokesman for rebel leader Riek Machar. Spokesman James Ruang claimed that although the fighting occurred, government troops mainly targeted fighters belonging to Low Nur, the tribe to which Riek Machar belongs. In the dry offensive, Jongle, Low Nur, and Bentiu were part of the areas we were defending our positions. They came to attack the Lone Weir, but again, when they were repulsed, then the war continued up to Ayut, where they were. And actually, Ayut was our area, actually. Now, that is the same thing with our situation in Bentiu. Because in Bentiu, they came out to invade our places, and then when we repulsed them back, this is where we reached up to the town of Bentiu. Explaining plainly what transpired militarily in the United States capital Bentiu, Rebel spokesman James Ruang said. Now what happened is that we have actually flushed out this army in Ayut as a result of this uh, aggression and uh, we have captured two tanks and we have destroyed uh, artillerists mounted on the vehicles, three of them, and we have killed many of them. That was South Sudan new rebel spokesman James Ruang. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shemanyulav.
Catholic Commission for Justice and Peace in Zimbabwe, CCJPZ, has described by-elections to replace former Vice President Joyce Mujuru over the weekend as a circus. The two by-elections in Chirumanzu and Mount Darwin were meant to replace the current Vice President, Emerson Mnangangwa and Joyce Mujuru, respectively. Simon Muchemo has more from Harare. Elections held over the weekend to replace former Vice President Joyce Mujuru and his successor Emerson Mnangagwa in Zimbabwe have been described as a joke. Catholic Commission for Justice and Peace in Zimbabwe said Monday the two by-elections were held under some intimidating atmosphere, hence were not free and fair. Bishop Alex Mchabaiwa stated that the by-elections over the weekend were a general reflection of the political scenario in the entire country. The Catholic bishops said the ruling ZANU-PF is over a long time managed to activate fear in the minds of voters accrued since the bloody 2008 elections. During those elections, there was no outright winner resulting in the bloodshed ahead of the runoff between former Premier Morgan Changrai and President Robert Mugabe. Bishop Mchabaiwa explained. On the political scene, would like to thank God that the elections were peaceful. However, these by-elections were not free and fair. Why? For example, in the resettlement areas, some people were told that if they make any independent political choices, any independent political choices, the land will be taken away from them, just as it has happened to some in the previous elections. All those in resettlement areas came to vote in large numbers, whilst there was vote apathy in non-resettlement areas. At the same time, we noticed institutionalized fear because some people were saying, I just want to dip my finger in the ink as evidence that I have voted. The powerful bishop's body called for the speedy establishment of a peace and reconciliation commission to deal with past atrocities. Some of the non-atrocities include the massacre of nearly 20,000 Debele-speaking Zimbabweans after independence as well as 400 pro-opposition activists in 2008. However, Mugabe's government has refused to explain what really happened and has managed to open bleeding wounds each time there's an election. Mugabe so far has failed to apologize and describe the atrocities as a moment of madness. We reiterate the immediate need of a comprehensive national peace and reconciliation process which would remove people's fear and panic. Otherwise, the forthcoming 15 by-elections and the 2018 harmonized elections would just be a constitutional formality. We are hopeful that the oncoming recruitment of the National Peace and Reconciliation Commissioners and staff members is the beginning of such a process. The Church is willing 
Bishop Mshabaiwa who is the chairperson of the CCJPZ said his faith-based organization would continue working with the Zimbabwean government until the next elections in 2018. It is believed President Mugabe is likely going to make history by becoming the oldest leader in the world by entering into an election in 2018. But as you may be aware, Justice and Peace Commission has an ongoing human rights monitoring and documentation initiative of pre-voting and post-voting periods which also influenced this statement. Meanwhile, Opposition Movement for Democratic Change boycotted the weekend polls citing voting irregularities. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Amnesty International says the Gambia has thumped its nose at the international community after it failed to accept a raft of recommendations to address its deteriorating human rights situation. The Gambian government only accepted 93 of the 171 recommendations at the United Nations Universal Periodic Review. The country did not accept recommendations concerning the ratification of the Convention Against Torture as well as the abolition of the death penalty. The government also rejected non-criminalization of sexual orientation or gender identity. For more on this, Komutsu Mupulani spoke to Sabrina Matani, Amnesty's West Africa researcher. The Universal Periodic Review is uh, a mechanism that's employed by the United Nations and specifically the United Nations Human Rights Council. So most countries in the world will go through this process every several years. And it's an opportunity for other states and countries to look at the human rights situation in a country and to make recommendations about how these should be, be improved. So there's a great element of sort of fairness here in that you're being reviewed by your peers. So Gambia's uh, Universal Periodic Review they were reviewed by over 62 countries who made uh, 171 recommendations around the human rights situation. Amnesty International has really spoken against um, the government of Gambia's failure to accept a raft of recommendations and specifically those to address its deteriorating human rights situation. Would you please um, elaborate more on that? The human rights situation in Gambia is deteriorating and Gambia's rejection of fundamental human rights recommendations made at the UPR shows its lack of willingness to address this. For example, they rejected abolishing the death penalty, which they used in 2012. They've rejected repealing laws criminalizing sexual minorities and in fact they acknowledge that they do prosecute them according to the laws of the Gambia. They rejected repealing laws that restrict freedom of expression and it's common knowledge that many journalists and human rights defenders are targeted. They rejected uh, giving unfettered access to the UN special mechanisms. They also rejected implementing judgments of the ECOWAS regional court. So as you can see, Gambia has really rejected some quite fundamental and key human rights recommendations. And this is very disappointing because this was an opportunity for the Gambian government to show some willingness to address its critical human rights situation. Mm. What could have been um, the reasons for the government of Gambia to reject um, such recommendations? 
No reasons were given specifically. The response by Gambia to this uh, universal periodic review process does not reflect the reality on the ground. For example, in their response, they say, yes, journalists and human rights defenders can work freely. But this is certainly not the case and not the case for opposition leaders either. If I can give you an example, in December 2013, Amadou Sané, who uh, was part of the United Democratic Party, and two other UDP members were convicted of sedition and sentenced to up to five years imprisonment. They were held incommunicado. All three were allegedly tortured to confess on national television. Two of them did not have any legal representation throughout their detention, and so Amnesty considers them prisoners of conscience. What does this really say about the government of Gambia? So really, we feel that the Gambian government um, does not address its human rights situation, does not take it seriously, and this can be clearly seen throughout its response to the UPR. Our position is that the government really does not take its human rights situation seriously. Our view is that the international community needs to take concrete steps to really address the Gambian government's lack of respect for human rights. States can follow up with the recommendations they made and raise these issues in bilateral meetings, for example. They can keep monitoring the situation and trying to encourage the government to implement the recommendations they did accept. We really feel that the world cannot just sit back and watch uh, Gambia's human rights situation deteriorate as it has been over the last few years. We know, though, that as much as uh, some of the recommendations were rejected, only about 93 recommendations were accepted by the government of Gambia. Which recommendations have been accepted? They did accept quite a few recommendations around economic and social rights. So, for example, credit them accepting a recommendations like around gender equality and empowering women. But yes, and these are still quite vague, and it's unclear how the government will accept them. But for us, we are concerned not at the number of exceptions or rejections, but the key ones they rejected. And as I've said, rejecting fundamental human rights recommendations, such as not repealing laws that criminalize freedom of expression. Or, for example, in October, the Gambian government passed the aggravated homosexuality bill, which allows for life imprisonment for anybody who is who is suspected of being a lesbian. These are really serious laws. The government has openly acknowledged in its UPR review that it will not change, and in fact it says that these laws are valid according to them. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. That was Sabrina Matani, a researcher at Amnesty International's West and Central Africa Regional Office, speaking to Khumutsu Pulane. It's 8.26 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The International Organization for Migration says an apparent airstrike at a camp for people displaced by fighting in Yemen has left about 40 people dead. The organization's spokesperson, Joel Milman, says the attack near the town of Harad in the northwest of the country has also injured 200 people and 25 of them severely. Humanitarian workers with the UN partner agency working elsewhere in the country have also reported explosions, including in the capital, Sana'a. Milman elaborates. The latest we're told is 40 dead 
not 45 as previously reported, 40 and 200 injured. Of those 200, we're told about 25 are severely injured. Now this is at uh, Al-Mazrat camp. It's located very close to a military base? Couldn't tell you that. We know that it's close to a location in the Hajar government called Harad. We're told that five of the casualties are soldiers, three of them killed, two of them injured. Couldn't tell you what other installations are nearby. So you've got soldiers hurt and you've also got displaced people hurt, or can you not verify that? Well, yeah, I mean, we understand the majority of the people are displaced people. We don't know of any foreign nationals in transit that might have been there. We don't know if any aid workers are among the injured or killed. All we really know is 40 dead, 200 injured. That number could climb. Some of our IOM people have witnessed airstrikes in other parts of the country, like Sana. Uh, in the last few minutes, uh, they said one of them landed very close to an IOM building, and they could feel the windows shattering. So how are you getting these people treated? Are you directly involved in that? Are you taking them to a hospital? I understand access is very difficult. Well, I understand that they are, and I also know that we've got almost 400 people in Yemen, and quite a number of them operate in these mobile units, and so they were able to get to the camp quite quickly. We think there's 25 IOM employees right in the facility right now. Can we talk more widely about the needs in Yemen? Because this comes on top of 100,000 people in the last year being displaced by conflict, and this is one of the, or it is the poorest country in the Middle East. Yeah. So, obviously, you must be very concerned for the people on the ground now. Well, yeah, I mean, Yemen's a, an area of great concern for us, in part because of the transit, you know, of, of Horn of Africa people. We, we hear it's in the news quite a lot. That was Joel Millman, spokesperson at the International Organization for Migration, speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. Let's go back in time to the year 2013 today. Timbuktu is hit by a prolonged battle between Islamic extremists linked to al-Qaeda and the Malian and French armies. Greg Khos has more. French and Mali troops are searching for Islamist rebels in the northern Mali city of Timbuktu following heavy fighting against the rebels that left several dead. The troops captured the city from Islamist militants in January. Tom Fessi reports. Several jihadi fighters are still believed to be hiding somewhere in the town where tension is still high. At least two of them reportedly engaged Malian and French troops in a firefight early in the morning from a house located at the entrance of the army's barracks. The French have destroyed the house, but the search for residual jihadi elements continues. The area is completely cordoned off, while most residents are staying in their homes, fearing renewed fighting downtown. Only a few shops have opened in the city. That clip, courtesy of the SABC archives. It's exactly 8.30 Central African time, and it's time for the headlines with Anne Musa. Good morning. Nigeria's opposition candidate Mohamedou Buhari is in the lead with votes from 18 states out of 36 states and the federal capital counted. A three-day lockdown in Sierra Leone exposes hundreds of potential new cases of Ebola. And gunmen kill a top Ugandan state prosecutor whose cases include the trial of 13 men accused of involvement in Al-Shabaab bomb attacks that killed 76 people in 2010. Those are the stories making headlines.
Thank you, Anne. South Africa wants to use its relationship with Algeria to tap into North African markets. As Pretoria's largest trading partner, the two-way trade between the two countries is standing at just over 2 billion rand in favor of South Africa. And President Jacob Zuma wants to use his two-day state visit to the country to increase trade and investment between the two nations. He is accompanied by six cabinet ministers and dozens of local business people. Algeria is South Africa's strategic partner in the North Africa region, the total exports to that country standing at 1.8 billion rand, whilst Pretoria's imports from Algeria are valued at 86 million rand. So far, both countries have signed 33 bilateral agreements on trade, agriculture, mining and nuclear energy, amongst others. President Jacob Zuma and his Algerian counterpart Abdelaziz Bouteflika will sign new agreements to increase trade between the two countries. South Africa's ambassador to Algeria, Togozani Tlomo, says global challenges will also be discussed. We are expecting that on the 31st, the two presidents are going to have a tete-a-tete and share ideas on how to address issues pertaining to peace and security on the continent, how they would work together in advancing Agenda 2063, amongst other things. They would also look at how the global agenda towards making the world a safer and better place for all of us could be advanced. Algeria is a gas-rich country with its economy dependent mainly on hydrocarbon export, but now it wants to diversify its markets by exploring its potential in the mining, agro-processing and infrastructure sectors. And Ambassador Tlomo says there are new areas where South Africa can help. The main area of priority would be information and communications technology because it has a potential of absorbing a lot of young people in both the South African and Algerian societies. The other area is in agribusiness linked to food security. As you would be well aware, both South Africa and Algeria are water-scarce countries. Therefore, it is critical for both countries to start looking tangibly at how they can look at new ways of doing agriculture and investing. We bring in our experience of Operation Pagisa and we'll be looking at sharing that insight with Algeria in order to develop projects and programs that we can implement together. Senior researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs, Tom Wheeler, says South Africa stands to benefit from Algeria's position in North Africa and its strategic location to Europe. Algeria has an economy that depends entirely on oil and gas. They want to expand that. So the benefit for South Africa is that we have big construction companies who could uh, do construction for them of infrastructure. It's a market that's very close to Europe. If some of our companies wanted to establish factories there, they might be able to do that and export more easily to Europe than all the way from South Africa. So this is to both sides' advantage if they can find the right recipe. Algeria is situated at the northern tip of the African continent and has had cordial relations with the ANC since the early 1950s. It was here where the global icon Nelson Mandela first got his military training, paving way for long-standing relations between the two countries. President Zuma and his Algerian counterpart Abdelaziz Bouteflika will this morning preside over the South Africa-Algeria Binational Commission, which consolidates political and economic relations between the two nations. I am Tebumokobo, CLGS in Algeria. 
It's 8.35 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Going back in time to today in 1992, the United Nations imposed sanctions on Libya for refusing to hand over two men suspected of bombing the Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland and a French airliner over Niger. That was Today in History in 1992. Africa Rise and Shine. Africa, Zorka, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. Nestle South Africa holds exclusive rights to the shape of its Kit Kat chocolate. South African courts recognize the trademark over the shape, forcing a competitor to recall its chocolates, which have a similar shape. The Constitutional Court refused to step into the fray, meaning that a recent Supreme Court of Appeal judgment holds sway. Candace Nolan has more. It was to be an epic battle over the shape of a chocolate, with Nestle winning the monopoly, in South Africa at least. Most South African consumers are familiar with the Kit Kat chocolate, described in court papers as two or four trapezoidal bars joined at the bottom. This is an excerpt from a Kit Kat ad on YouTube. Working like a machine. Have a break. Have a Kit Kat. Kit Kats have been on the market for over 50 years and is the third largest chocolate brand in the world. But then the International Foodstuffs Company, or IFCO, introduced its Tiffany Break brand of chocolate, which looks similar to the Kit Kat bar. The crunchiest wafers in the smoothest milk chocolate. It's all in the crunch. Break free with Tiffany Break. Nestle successfully sued IFCO for infringement of its shape trademark. IFCO gets to keep its Tiffany Break brand name. It's only the shape of the chocolate that will have to change. Gabby Menchies is a trademarks attorney. And essentially those products need to be pulled from the shelves and... IFCO will have to change their product to no longer be confusingly similar to the Nestle Kit Kat brand. The battle over the shape trademark reached the Constitutional Court when IFCO tried to appeal against an earlier Supreme Court of Appeal decision. The SCA found that the break chocolate infringes on Nestle's shape trademark. Without hearing arguments, the Constitutional Court dismissed IFCO's appeal. Nestle spokesperson Mochidisi Mokwena. As Nestle South Africa, we are pleased with the court's decision. Um, Kit Kat is one of Nestle's iconic brands worldwide, and we have worked very hard over the years to build this brand equity. But in other parts of the world, Nestle lost its monopoly on the Kit Kat shape. Professor Owen Dean is an expert in intellectual property law at Stellenbosch University. They've sued in a variety of countries, and in some countries the courts have reached a different conclusion. In other words, they've disallowed the trademark. It's been about a 50-50 split. I think it's correct as far as whether the shape can be a trademark. But of course, it is contentious to the extent that other countries have decided differently. This whole concept of shape trademarks is a novel area of our law. And for chocolatiers in particular, battles over the shapes of a particular chocolate are not unheard of. Trademark expert Ilsa Duplessis. For instance, another shape mark that was quite controversial was the lint chocolate bunny, you know, that golden bunny with the little red lint around the neck. And there the court said, no, it's 
commonplace. I mean, especially around Easter time, a lot of people make chocolate bunnies wrapped in gold, and Lindt wasn't successful with that particular action. In the chocolate world, shape balls are not uncommon. South African consumers will no longer be able to buy the Tiffany break in its wafer finger form. Funny enough, because of Nestle's varied success in protecting its shape monopoly, South Africans travelling in other parts of the world may well be able to find the wafer finger-shaped chocolate made by someone other than Nestle. That report by Candace Nolan in Johannesburg. A New York-based media critic believes comedian Trevor Noah has broken through a glass ceiling after the announcement he will replace Jon Stewart as host of The Daily Show. Sean Jacobs, who is a scholar of media and international relations at the New School, believes that beyond the big shoes he will have to fill as the face of the show, Noah will make history by becoming the first black host of a major television talk show in the sought-after late-night slot in the United States. Sean Bryce-Peace reports. We are very pleased to welcome our newest contributor from South Africa, Mr. Trevor Noah. Trevor, thanks for joining us. This was Jon Stewart welcoming Trevor Noah on his debut in December last year as a senior correspondent for The Daily Show. You flew in, I guess, uh, yesterday from South Africa. Yeah, I just flew in and boy, are my arms tired. (laughs) Okay. All right there, oldie but a goodie. Very nice. No, 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 seriously. uh, I've been holding my arms like this since I got here. Yeah. I never thought I'd be more afraid of police in America than in South Africa. It's... Kind of makes me a little nostalgic for the old days back home. That's just, come on. Among the biggest challenges for Trevor Noah will be replacing someone that has won over the hearts and minds of the American audience. To many people, Jon Stewart is The Daily Show. And that loyal fan base will take a very cautious look at his replacement. Someone that remains largely unknown in the United States. Media analyst Sean Jacobs believes this show won't be a walk in the park for any new host, let alone a foreigner. The Daily Show is really about American politics and you have to have like a sort of insider knowledge, you have to understand the, the language, the vernacular of American politics. You should be able to like interview people like Bill O'Reilly and spar with them. The question is does Trevor Noah have that? On the other hand I think he brings like something else. He brings an international voice which is something that, that clearly people are thinking is missing in the way that we talk about news in America. Noah can also expect a huge spotlight. Is he talented? Can he cut it? He's going to have a lot of negative publicity, way more than he's ever received in, in his life. I mean, this is, this is you know, the, the media capital of the world in the United States. I think the bulk of people who are on social media, whether Twitter or Facebook in English, are in the United States. So he, he has to up his game um, when he's in the U.S. Trevor Noah also beat out more well-known contenders, including Canadian comedian Samantha Bee, who has been a contributor on the show since 2003, and Jessica Williams, who joined in 2012. Here, Trevor and John again. I've got to be honest, John. Africa's worried about you guys. You know what African mothers tell their children every day? Be grateful for what you have, because there are fat children starving in Mississippi. Comedy Central has not announced the date when Trevor Noah will debut in the hot seat, but Jon Stewart is expected to vacate the position before the end of the year. I'm Sherwin Bricebees in New York. It is for 8.42, rather, Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Going back in time to today in 2009, 
Benjamin Netanyahu, <coughs> I beg your pardon, taking office as Israel's new leader, promises to seek full peace with the Arab and Muslim world, but refuses to utter the words the, word, the world was waiting to hear, Palestinian state. That was today in history in the year 2009. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, Wema. Sun rises. The soleil elevé. We are Wema. What's in the happen, Africa? Africa, Dumelang, San Bonani. Africa, Mulishani, Mulibanj. Africa, Ayanyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen, Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa, Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana, Gabon, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from. We are one people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. Channel Africa listener, please note that as from Monday the 30th of March 2015, the English frequency to Eastern Central Africa between 0500 and 0600 Central African time changes to 5980 kHz in the 49 meter band. I repeat, the frequency will change to 5980 kHz in the 49 meter band. Also changing is the English frequency to Southern Africa between 0700 and 0800 Central African time. It is now changing to 6145 kHz in the 41 meter band. I'll repeat that. The broadcast to Southern Africa will change to 6145 kHz in the 41 meter band. Channel Africa, your voice of the African Renaissance. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehoko. Zimbabwe has denied reports that it plans to forcibly take over privately owned telecommunications infrastructure. The government says it wants to ensure that mobile network operators share the infrastructure. Econet Wireless, the largest operator with 80% of the infrastructure, has described the proposal as a disguised and unconstitutional form of compulsory acquisition of its equipment. However, Information and Communication Technology Minister Supra Ma Nduanzira says Ekenet's reaction is premature. So we are not intending to grab anyone's assets. We are intending to enhance the business environment, to enhance uh, profits for those that have already invested in, in infrastructure. If it is the contention of Econet that it has invested so much more than anybody else, they are actually going to be the biggest beneficiary of government's intentions. South Africa and Algeria have vowed to ensure the full implementation of the over 30 bilateral agreements signed between the two countries. President Jacob Zuma and his Algeria counterpart Abdelaziz Bouteflika are expected to sign an additional five bilateral agreements in Algiers today. Zuma is on a two-day state visit to the North African country. Both the countries have so far signed 33 bilateral agreements that include mining and nuclear energy. 
South Africa's International Relations Minister Maiteng Wanamashabane says the two leaders will sign a memorandum of understanding to ensure implementation of all the agreements. On the other side, we know that we will be also signing an MOU again of facilitation of programs of action to implement the 30 plus MOUs, but also to say the four outstanding, which also include uh, collaboration and cooperation in the tourism sector, arts and culture, and so on. South Africa's National Union of Mine Workers has welcomed the resignation of Zola Tsuzi as chair of power utility ESCOM. Last week, the union called on Public Enterprises Minister Lynn Brown to fire Tsuzi, warning that the state of corporate governance was degenerating at ESCOM. The power utility has confirmed the resignation of Tsotsi. It comes after he was accused of acting improperly. Earlier in the month, Tsotsi suspended four senior executives at ESCOM, including CEO Tsidiso Matona. Franz Baleni is the union's general secretary. We think that Mr. Tsotsi has done a right thing, which is step aside and allow the organization to move on, do what it's supposed to be doing of generating transmitting and distribution uh, of electricity. Quitting sometimes is another form of leadership and not drag the organization to fall down with you. Tanzania plans to spend $14.2 billion to construct a new rail network in the next five years of financed with commercial loans. The country wants to profit from its long coastline and upgrade existing rickety railways and roads to serve growing economies in the landlocked heart of Africa. Oil discoveries in Kenya and Uganda and gas finds in Tanzania have turned East Africa into an exploration hotspot for oil firms. African oil products demand growth uh, remains rather African oil products demand growth remains strong across all regions. This emerged at the SciTech Downstream African Workshops held in rather this year in Cape Town, South Africa. Um, SciTech Africa is the first to announce the previous year's industry data and forecast petroleum products supply and demand across Africa. It reports that African oil products demand grew by 4.8% year-on-year in 2014, comprising 4% in North Africa and 5.2% in Sub-Saharan Africa. SciTech Africa is now forecasting African oil products demand to grow by at least 3.2% per annum. Indicators at this hour. The U.S. dollar trades at 1208 South African Rand, 974 Botswana Pula, 753 in Zambia, 067 British Pound, 091 across the Euro, Gold 1181 dollars, Platinum 1117 dollars an ounce, Brand Crew 55 dollars, 77 cents a barrel. That's an economic update here in Channel Africa. My name is Tabi Solohoku and welcome to it. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati.
in our sports update this hour. 19-year-old South Africa's Northern Cape power lifter Zuelinzi Mabunolo Lizwe says he's proud of himself after breaking two South African records in a 62 kilograms for squats and a deadlift at the NetBank National Championships for physically disabled currently underway at the Walter Sisulu Hall in Johannesburg. Lizwe set the new national mark in the squat of 130 kilograms, improving it by 20 kg, while in the deadlift he managed to improve the record by 2.5 kg with his heave of 192.5 kg. Lizwe also won gold in the bench but couldn't break the existing record. The blind Lizwe says he's proud of his achievements, especially after having to run to the venue after the Kumbi to the championship was involved in a minor accident. On to football news, Tunisian Football Federation, the TFF Vice President Mahir Snozi, has negotiated a deal with the Confederation of African Football, CAF, that will enable the country to compete in the 2017 African Nations Cup qualifiers. The TFF was threatened with expulsion from the preliminary tournament if it did not apologize by the 31st of March for claims of bias by officials in a chaotic end to their campaign in this year's Champions Nations Cup in Equatorial Guinea. Snowzy says he met CAF President Issa Hayato in Dakar this month and agreed uh, a solution to the dispute between the two bodies. Tunisia have agreed to withdraw their protest to the Court of Arbitration case after Kev fined them 50,000 US dollars and threatened to ban them from the next tournament in the TFF did not apologize for remarks made about officials after the 2-1 quarterfinal loss to host Equatorial Guinea. On to rugby news. The Springbok Sevens have called up uncapped Carl Dubris to replace injured forward Philip Sneeman for the Tokyo Sevens tournament which takes place this coming weekend. The versatile Sneeman sustained a knee ligament injury while playing for the Springbok Sevens on Saturday in Hong Kong. Dubri is currently contracted to the South African Sevens Series Academy and has already played a couple of times for the Academy at tournaments in George, Dubai and Harare. The tall loose forward represented the Western Province in the Under-21 Curry Cup competition last year and he has impressed the South African Sevens coaching staff since his full-time switch to the shorter code at the end of last year. The Japanese tournament is round 7 of the World Rugby 7 Series, which consists of 9 rounds overall. The Kenya National Rugby 7 team has been drawn against Mike Friday's United States, South Africa and Canada for the next leg of the IRB Rugby 7 Series in J- Tokyo in Japan. Kenya won the Shield title in Hong Kong this past weekend with a 26-7 win over Japan in the finals, picking only three points to add up to 32 points after six legs so far this season. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi reports. Kenya won the Shield title in Hong Kong last weekend with a 26-7 win over Japan in the finals, picking only three points to add up to 32 points after six legs so far this season. Kenya fell to the Shield category after a miserable run at the Hong Kong Sevens, following a 21-10 loss to Canada in the ball category. In the Shield semis, Kenya beat Portugal to meet Japan in the Shield final, which they won easily. This performance in Hong Kong will have serious implications, though, in terms of the team's dreams of reaching the Olympics on the team's performance because they fell to the ball category after losing all their three pool matches against USA, England and Wales. And finally for the Lions middle order batsman Temba Bavuma 
It has been a season of achievements both at franchise and the national level respectively. Bavuma, who recently lifted aloft the Sunfall Series Championship with the Lions last week, also made his Pro Tiers Test debut over the summer during West Indies Tour of South Africa. Bavuma says winning the Sunfall Series has made amends for the failures in the other competitions. Yeah, it's been a year of achievements, hasn't it been? I mean, you know, I was also quite fortunate, you know, to also get the opportunity to make my debut. You know, that was quite a memorable time for me, you know. And also, you know, winning the Sunfall Series, just looking at the season as a whole, you know, it has been quite frustrating for us. You know, we've played very well, but in patches, you know, we've struggled to be consistent. Look back at the Ram Slam T20 competition where, you know, I felt that we should have won that. The momentum, you know, we were there and about. And, you know, I think it's almost like the cherry on top, you know, for us winning that Sunfall Series. I think at the start of the season, and we would have taken the Sunfall Series you know, over the other competitions. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at this hour. Observers say voting in Nigeria's general election was credible and fierce fighting erupts in South Sudan's unity state. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagadza and Khumuzo Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is The Party by Harare. We're having a-